0: This is the MLW Radio Network. Hey
1: everybody, welcome to Overbooked with Mike Freeland. This is a program brought to you by Front Row Material. All right, guys, welcome to another episode of Overbooked. We are part of Front Row Material. Uh, For all of you who are joining us for the first time, we are now venturing into Chapter 5 if uh, you're just joining us for the first time and you want to get caught up with what we have talked about before, definitely go in the archives. You can check out chapters one, two, three, and 4. That'll get you caught up to where we are today. So let's kind of jump right into it here. In chapter 4 where we left off, there was going to be a championship tournament to crown a new NWA champion. It was going to be with Dennis Corluzo. He was going to be joining forces with, obviously, Todd Gordon and Paul Heyman. They were looking to do some business here. But we've kind of alluded to that some things were going to be a little bit different going into this chapter. Things weren't exactly on the up and up with, uh, with all the gentlemen involved here. So chapter five really kind of shed some light into what happened. How did we get there? And really what was the fallout and how ECW really started to become the product and the brand that we eventually became to know. So on August 27th of 94, uh, the NWA and Eastern Championship Wrestling held a championship tournament where they were going to declare a new NWA champion and that they were going to kind of merge with Eastern Championship Wrestling. So as many of you guys know, Shane Douglas did end up winning that tournament. He was in the finals against Two Cold Scorpio. And then what kind of happens after that kind of goes down in wrestling lore as one of the, I I guess it's not too far-fetched to say, one of the most defining moments in modern wrestling was when Shane Douglas had the infamous promo about the NWA and lineage of the NWA and all the former NWA champions and then he threw down the belt so you know what instead of me going into it and kind of breaking it down I thought it might be a little bit better for all of us together to relive that clip so let's go ahead and let's roll that this is Shane Douglas right after he wins the NWA tournament and uh, let's find out what Shane has to say and then we're gonna unpack everything that happened moments later
0: before God and my Father in Heaven tonight as I said I would be world heavyweight champion. In the tradition of Lou Vance, in the tradition of Jack Briscoe, of the Briscoe Brothers, of Dorney Fultz Jr. Tonight, before God and my father as witness, I declare myself, the franchise, as the new ECW heavyweight champion of the world! James Douglas declaring himself. We have set out to, to change world the face champion. of professional wrestling. So tonight, let the new era begin. The era of the sport of professional wrestling. The era of the franchise. The era of the ECW.
1: Alright, so now you've heard it from Shane himself, exactly what was said, how it went down. It was a pretty big thing that Shane did, and Shane has done a lot of shoot interviews since this uh, has gone down, and he basically said he was kind of torn at the end of the day what he was going to do, but it wasn't until that moment that he had the NWA championship and on his shoulder, and he thought, man, what am I going to do, what am I going to do, and Shane's father had recently passed away and uh, Shane had mentioned in interviews, you know, his dad said, you can, you can be a leader in this world. Um, And and it's not easy to be a leader. It's not easy to break away and to do the right thing. And so that's what Shane did. Shane broke away and he decided that he was going to stand on his own two feet. And that's when he cut that promo. So Shane was really kind of unsure of what was going to happen even up to that very last second. So there it is, and the crowd is kind of shocked right now. If you go on the WWE Network and you and you rewatch this, you can see a lot of people in the front row who are just kind of like, "What's happening here? Is this is this a shoot? Is this a work? What, what's going on here?" Well, the big question I'm sure everybody's wanting to know is who all knew about this? Did Paul know about this? Did Todd know about this? Uh, obviously, Dennis was not aware. Or was he? So basically what had happened was Paul and Todd had talked to Shane beforehand about doing it. And I guess it was left up to Shane to decide whether he wanted to follow through with it or not. And then Shane decided in the moment when he was in the ring that, yeah, the moment felt right and it was time to do it. And Dennis Corluzzo, from many, many accounts of this, was sitting front row ringside next to Todd Gordon, just in utter shock. He didn't know what was going on, what was happening. And Todd Gordon tells a really funny story about how Dennis was was biting his fingernails, going, w- w- "What's going on, man? He he's shitting on the belt. What w- what's going on?" And Todd's basically trying to calm him down, going, "Don't worry, don't worry, man. It's a work. Don't worry. Just just play it cool." We'll get backstage after this is over. So, Todd Gordon is basically trying to lead Dennis down a road that everything's going to be fine, when in reality, Todd and Paul and Shane also know that it's it's not going to be the same. This was a tipping point when it came to the relationship with Dennis Corluzzo. Because when you think about it, the relationship Dennis Corluzzo has had with, Before, it was Tri-State Wrestling with Joel Goodhart. And then that wasn't a great relationship, as you can go back and hear it in the archives. But then, obviously, he didn't really get off on the right foot with Todd Gordon either. And then, obviously, when Paul Heyman comes in, that doesn't really get off to a very good start. And there was a lot of animosity between Dennis and Paul and Dennis and Todd. Because, you know, Dennis didn't like the idea that shows were running across from each other and that guys are going to be booked on both shows. And, you know, for whatever reason, Dennis just had his vision of how business should be done. And at the end of the day, Paul and Todd had their vision of how business should be run. So once again, relationship was strained from the word go, and it obviously didn't get any better after this promo was cut. So later on in the night, They convinced Dennis Corleza to go backstage and cut promos on Shane Douglas, telling him, no, you are going to be the NWA heavyweight champion and you are going to defend this belt and you are going to take this belt. So they continue to to hamstring Dennis along because they're, they're trying to set up, which I think would be called swerve part two, which would happen the following week on ECW television, which was kind of the, the bigger one, if you will. So, that's kind of how everything went, and everyone left that night, and it was kind of up in the air to what was really going to happen. Well, maybe Dennis wasn't as naive as we thought he was, and maybe Dennis knew a little bit more than he led on. So a lot of people had been basically telling him that, hey, dude, something's going to happen here. Like, something's going to happen here. I got a feeling these guys uh, rumor has it something's going to happen at the NWA tournament that Paul and Todd are going to be behind you know rumor has it that Shane may be involved as well well Dennis started to get some cold feet when he started hearing about all these rumors about oh god what are we going to do are we going to get swerved here but Dennis decided it was it was kind of too late to pull out he had to keep the show booked uh, but he knew something may happen so you know, I think Dennis might have been putting the uh, the act on as well a little bit, sitting front row ringside, because if he really was that concerned that something was going to happen, he probably would have done something. But I guess when you have all that money invested and you have all those people coming in to perform on a show, you can't fuck everybody. You really can't. I mean, just based upon a rumor and rumors and wrestling, I mean, it's just, they go hand in hand. So, So that was kind of what was happening here. So... It wasn't until the following week on ECW television that Todd Gordon got in the ring and he made an announcement. He announced that Eastern Championship Wrestling had closed. It was no more. Todd said that uh, a new organization was going to be created, and that was going to be Extreme Championship Wrestling. So before we kind of go into the whole Extreme Championship Wrestling thing, this officially cut ties with Dennis in the NWA. So, a week before, all it's 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 all a work, Dennis. Don't worry about it. You cut your promos. We'll continue to do business the very next week on TV. It's the big fuck you. So, it kind of depends on how you feel about the situation. There have been people who've said, "I don't agree with the way business was done here. I don't agree with swerving people. I don't agree with fucking people over when it comes to that." And I agree, in in general, you you probably shouldn't screw people or swerve people or anything to that nature. However, there's a lot more you have to take into consideration than that because it wasn't just the fact that they didn't have a good relationship. It wasn't just the fact that Dennis had his vision of how to run the wrestling business and Paul and Todd had had their vision of how to run a wrestling business. It was the fact that Dennis was doing things that I think if you were in the shoes of Todd Gordon and Paul Heyman, I think you might have done the same thing. And after I read this chapter and after I really sifted through it and I saw some you know, shoot interviews, I actually can justify why why they did what they did. So, But here's a little did-you-know fact. Did you know that when, obviously, Paul Heyman and Todd Gordon decided to end Eastern Championship Wrestling and call it Extreme Championship Wrestling, that in a meeting, Paul Heyman actually wanted ECW to, to stand for Extreme Combat Worldwide. Were you aware of that? Evidently, in the meeting, Paul Heyman decided that he wanted to try to get away from the word wrestling because in the 80s and even into the early 90s, it was very cartoonish. It didn't really have that excitement of anything could happen feel to it it just got real campy and he decided you know what let's do something that isn't being done right now let's do something that is going to shock the wrestling business it's going to give fans something to get excited about something that's different and as we all know you know you roll the dice when you do something different a lot of people say well different is is good different is fresh different is exciting but you also got to keep in mind on the flip side of that A lot of people like what they know, you know, just like when you go to a restaurant and, you know, you know what they offer on the menu and you're like, yep, I'm getting that. I've gotten that for forever. They make it the way I want it. And the next day you walk in, they change the menu and you're like, what is this? this isn't what I want, this isn't what I like, this is not, they're not using the same ingredients they used last time, so I I can definitely see on both sides here, I can see why Paul wanted to try to break away from the wrestling uh, version that was being produced out there, but at the end of the day, he decided, you know what, this is what we are, we are professional wrestling, we have to, we have to stick with that, so... So yeah, Extreme Combat Worldwide. Not sure how many of you guys knew that, but I thought that was interesting when I came across that here in Chapter 5. So we use a lot of wrestling terms, obviously, in this book, and Mikey and Jerry and I use a lot of wrestling terms when it comes to front row material, our uh, our mothership show. But when we use the word swerve, I just kind of want to go over that for a second because I think that's important. So what a swerve is, is... When you, one party, so if there's two parties, one party doesn't know that the other party is going to screw them. So, in this case, another example, Todd Gordon, Paul Heyman, uh, even Bob Ortiz said that Shane Douglas had tipped him off and said, hey, FYI, when this goes down, just want you to be able to grab the belt so no one, if there's a riotous atmosphere, steals it. So Bob Ortiz himself even admitted that he knew. But the swerve is when one half of the of the party or the business agreement does not know what's going to happen. And that's where the word swerve is because obviously you're you're dodging them, you're swerving them. So but just want to kind of go over that as well. So why would they swerve Dennis Carluzzo? Hmm, let's think about this. So yeah, business issues, maybe different philosophy styles, but there was more to it than that. So basically what had been happening is Todd Gordon and Paul Heyman were promoting shows. They were putting on Eastern Championship Wrestling. Dennis Corluzzo was doing his thing. Talent was having to make a decision back and forth who they were going to work for. Obviously, some people started to, to like ECW and wanted to work with them you know, it kind of became, I don't want to call it a bidding war, but it it became kind of like the line was drawn in the sand. You know, who are you going to work for? And I think some pressure was put on some of the guys from Dennis as well. And the guys just, the guys are out there to work. They're out there to get a paycheck and, you know, do what they love, but support their families as well. So I think some of Dennis's business acumen, might have rubbed some of the wrestlers the wrong way. I'm just hypothesizing. I'm not saying that's fact. I'm not saying that, you know, take it as as gold. But I'm just saying that that's my opinion from what I was reading. That's what I took away from it. So one of the things that I really think started to hinder the relationship as well was the fact that Dennis kept getting really upset about the way ECW was going, like I said before, the talent going back and forth, maybe some of the talent siding with Paul Heyman and uh, Todd Gordon. So what Dennis would do is Dennis would call the local fire department and inform them that he was making a, a phone call on the betterment of the fans in the ECW arena saying it was too crowded, it was over capacity, it was a fire hazard, it was dangerous. So this happened multiple times where the fire department had to come out to ECW Arena and it kind of halts things because, you know, what the hell's going on? Is this part of the show? Is this not? Well, Paul and Todd talk about this and they come to a conclusion that we need to talk to Dennis. And they said, you know, listen, Dennis, you screw us one more time, dude, and uh, you're going to wish you hadn't. And unfortunately, it happened again. But this time it wasn't Dennis. So Dennis brings his son into the feud and has his son call the fire department. And this just kind of was the straw that broke the camel's back. In my opinion, once again, I'm just throwing my two cents out there. My back would have been broke way before that. Like, it's getting really petty. It's getting really petty at this point. If you want to put on a better show, then put on a better show. You know, if you have issues with somebody, then you need to face them face-to-face and deal with it. I think Paul and Todd tried to do that. Dennis didn't really want to do that. I don't know if Dennis was a non-confrontational guy. I'm not sure, but it just comes across that way when you read about him. So, Dennis' son calls the fire department again, and that was the point where uh, Todd Gordon and Paul Heyman said, you know what, we're, we're going to do something about this, and at the NWA tournament, that's when they decided that they were going to officially break away and uh, that they were going to put the screws to Dennis for the for the final time. This is it. This is over. This is how we get our retribution. You know, whether some people agree with it or not, that's their opinion. But this is how we feel like we need to handle it. And, and they did it. So... I'd love to know what your thoughts are on the whole thing. Did you feel like the swerve was justified based upon what we've talked about so far in the, in the book? Do you feel like, eh, not really justified? Do you feel like it was kind of juvenile, the way all this kind of stuff went back and forth? Or do you think, hey, man, that's business. That's just the way it works. At the end of the day, it, it's really based upon what your morals and your ethics are. But I also think if you're trying to screw with somebody in their business, that's not cool. That's not cool at all, and from everything I've heard, people love Todd Gordon, and for <laughs> as crazy as his antics and his personality are, people love Paul Heyman as well, and I do know that there are some people who did work for Dennis Corluzo who do like Dennis as well, and I got no problem with that. I had no problem with that at all, but I still think things could have been done a little bit better. Maybe there could have been a relationship between the NWA, but... I don't think it was meant to be. It was years after that infamous swerve slash original screw job that Paul Heyman finally started to open up and discuss everything that happened when it came to the infamous promo that Shane cut. In a 1998 America Online chat, Paul Heyman discussed his motivations for using and throwing away the NWA name when it came to establishing ECW he said and I quote we broke away from the NWA because the National Wrestling Alliance was old school and it wasn't hip anymore he wrote we wanted to set our mark and we wanted to break away from the pack we wanted to let the world know that we just weren't some independent promotion and we knew that the NWA was just a relic from what it was in 1994. So when you look at all of this in its totality Paul Heyman, it was a double-edged sword, or it was two birds with one stone. They not only got to sever their relationship with the NWA, but they also got to reinvent themselves. They got to put themselves even a little bit more on the map. So I think things were, were good from the standpoint of drawing more eyeballs to the ECW product, So, the company appeared to be getting bigger and bigger, almost from the start. Fans started coming out to all their towns to see their shows, and especially in the Philadelphia area. ECW started making some inroads, promoting other cities that were near where they were, which was really good. They started to be able to reach out in a broader audience. Obviously, they have the TV deal, which is good. They're starting to look at expanding that. Um, Heyman decided that he needed to start working on some more projects. And this is really where I give Paul Heyman a lot of credit, because when we talk about the downfall of ECW, and then you look at the downfall of a company like WCW, some people may look at it and say, oh man, they they both failed and they both didn't succeed. Well, that wasn't necessarily the case. ECW did not fail because they weren't creating stars. They were, and Paul Heyman did an excellent job at creating stars you know they were guys that the WWF and WCW might not have wanted but what Paul was able to do was he was able to highlight and accentuate their positive aspects and kind of you know turn the the light away from some of the things that they didn't do so well so Paul decided he needed another big project. So he got in the public enemy to where he wanted to get them. And as we talked about in the last chapter, the public enemy came in and Paul repackaged them and really was able to get the crowd to associate themselves with them and to align themselves with them and really started to take the whole hip-hop, pop-culture element and infuse that into wrestling. So he decided that, you know what, I'm going to have another guy that I'm going to work on. His name is Tommy Dreamer. So a lot of us know Tommy Dreamer now. We know the hardcore Tommy Dreamer that we've seen in ECW, in the WWE, uh, Impact Wrestling, Ring of Honor, and now his promotion called House of Hardcore. But if you only know Tommy Dreamer from what you've seen from him the last 10, 15 years, it's it's really important that you learn who Tommy Dreamer was from the get-go. So Tommy was a babyface who is a good guy in the wrestling world, and he had been in the independent scene for a few years. And when he first came into ECW, uh, the fans really just crapped all over him. They they didn't like him. He didn't fit the persona of what ECW was. They didn't think that he was a tough guy, a brooding guy, that he couldn't handle himself in the Fight club atmosphere that was ECW. But Paul saw some things in Tommy that he really, really liked. And the one thing that Paul really respected about Tommy was the fact that Tommy had an incredible work ethic and that Tommy would not stop no matter what. Tommy had a motor that just kept going. And Paul loved the fact that it was a, a never say die attitude. And that was the first thing that Paul realized that he could work with when it came to Tommy. So, first thing he ended up doing was he ended up putting him in a program with the Sandman. So obviously Sandman is over right now and people are loving the Sandman and not so much with Tommy. Well, even in a losing effort, Tommy Dreamer started to make that turn. He lost a match with the Sandman in which the loser of the match gets 10 whacks with the Singapore cane. So for all of you who are not old enough to understand what is a Singapore cane, How did it get implemented into ECW? Now we we see Singapore canes or kendo sticks or whatever you would like to refer to them as underneath the ring in all different promotions. Steve Blackman had it in the WWF, whatever. So let's pause the storyline between Sandman and Tommy Dreamer to talk a little bit about the kendo stick, or the Singapore cane. So there was a guy named Michael Fay, and he was a teenager, and he went over to Singapore and he got in trouble because of graffiti he vandalized some property over in singapore so he's an american kid goes over to singapore i believe it was spray painting he did back in the early to mid 90s spray painting was, was a big deal anyway The courts over there found him guilty, and the punishment before he would get extradited back to the United States was the fact that he would get 10 lashes with a Singapore cane. And that was all over the news. And I mean, I remember vividly uh, watching that in, you know, how upset his parents were about this whole thing. So the Singapore cane kind of got infused into society because of this big mainstream news situation. All right, so let's get back to the match itself. So Tommy ends up losing the match to the Sandman, and he ends up getting 10 whacks of the Singapore cane. So woman who is with Sandman at the time gets in the ring as well, and she gets on the mic, and she starts berating Tommy, and Tommy stands up and puts his hands on the top rope, and he's ready and willing to accept his his lashes. So to make a long story short... Tommy ends up getting these 10 lashes from the Singapore cane, from the Sandman, and the Sandman has gone on to say in interviews, he was laying them in. And the big thing that you need to remember about wrestling, and this is something Jerry and Mikey have, have ingrained in me, is that when you work in a small crowd, when you work in a small arena, laying them in is, you gotta be as snug as possible because you wanna make it look as real as possible. So when you might have a little bit of a distance from the audience to the ring itself, some guys may work a little lighter, but working snug is really laying them in there, and not trying to hurt the guy intentionally, but making it look as authentic as possible. Well, the Sandman at this time even admitted that he was wailing on Tommy Dreamer, and after the first couple lashes, it broke Tommy's skin, and he was already bleeding, and you could see the look on not only Sandman's face, but also on woman's face that, okay, this this is gonna get bad. If this is whack two and he's already busted open and bleeding on his back, then it's gonna get ugly. And the crowd in the ECW arena also was was very quiet during this time because you really hadn't seen something like this happen before. And like I said, with the news story about the kid over in Singapore, it was all over everyone's home TV in the evenings. So when this was happening live in front of them, and the audience in the ECW arena could see Tommy physically bleeding, they started to realize this isn't just a work. This isn't just part of, quote-unquote, you know, the show, and they're not just performing. They are, but yeah, this is about as real violence as as it's going to be. And everybody started to kind of gasp. It got very quiet. Woman even tried to talk to Tommy and, and say, all right, you ready to give it up, Tommy? And she was saying it in her character, but she was also trying to get the message to Tommy just to say, all right, I've had enough. Well, Tommy never said, I'll have enough. He actually said, Sir, may I have another? And at the end of that night, his refusal to not take his punishment endeared him to the hardcore ECW fans. And they decided, you know what? We might not accept him right this second, but he's definitely on his way. This is not the same suspender wearing baby face guy that we've seen before this guy maybe have a little bit more moxie to him than we had originally given him respect for so Paul very happy with the fact that he's getting Tommy over now Tommy's very happy about this obviously his back was laid open something terrible and I'm going to try to post some pictures on social media as well on Twitter so you guys can see what some of these images look like but they are They are pretty damn horrific. So, this continued. So, on October the 1st of 1994, they decided that they were going to blur the lines again, working with Sandman and Tommy, that is. And they decided that because Tommy did not quit or give up receiving his lashes, that there would be a match that would be made between the two, and it would be an I quit match. So, the only way to win this match was for one of the two competitors to openly say I quit. So the match opens up, Dreamer opens up by attacking the Sandman with all different kinds of weapons that the audience is handing him. Even, uh, I believe a car door was even used. So, and then Sandman started to get in the upper hand. They start going back and forth. Well, the Sandman, as he typically does, he has his beer and he has his cigarette. Well, when he felt like he had Tommy down, and beaten, he stands over Tommy, lights a cigarette. Tommy then retaliates. The cigarette goes into Sandman's eye. And then at that point, woman starts screaming. Uh, the referee jumps down. Todd Gordon comes out from, from behind the scenes. He's telling the cameraman to please stop. Get out of the way. We need to get help. And everybody in the ECW arena really believe that, oh shit, you know, this... This wasn't supposed to happen, and they played the storyline up for quite, quite a while, and the whole concept that Paul was trying to do was, Paul was trying to make ECW a place where anything could happen at any moment in time, any amount of violence is and will happen, can and will, I should say, happen, and that it's unpredictable. Because when fans would go, think about it at the time, when fans would go to a WWF or a WCW show, you had all these cartoon characters. And we, we, I talked about them a, f- a few minutes before. All these cartoon characters, you know, garbage men and clowns and cowboys and Native Americans and whatever else. But here it was like regular guys who worked 9 to 5 during the week, but then they would come to the ECW arena to fight and I remember telling Jerry and Mikey one time, I said, this was this was Fight Club, or at least the perception of Fight Club, before Fight Club was Fight Club. And it was just, it was so exciting and so real. So fans were really, really pulled into this storyline. And Sandman had stayed off of ECW TV, I want to say it was at least a month, if not longer than that. So the next time Sandman comes back to ECW arena, Uh, Sandman comes out to retire. Um, And uh, he came out to an apologetic Tommy Dreamer, and then he caned Tommy into oblivion. So once again, you have taken Tommy Dreamer, you get him over, you get the Sandman's character to have sympathy for him. That not only builds up heat towards the two of them when there's gonna be this third and final confrontation, then Sandman's gonna be retiring. Whoops, not so much. Sandman isn't really blind, he beats Tommy down. So, that was the thing. That was the thing that Paul was trying to do. Paul was trying to blur those lines again, and I think he did a great job doing that. And if you have the WWE Network, I definitely recommend going on there. You can search for all different kinds of ECW pay-per-views and their television, so you can definitely check that out as well. Um, you know, for ECW's short life that it was on TV, it, it really got a bad rap in a lot of ways, and I mean, what I just discussed doesn't really help the cause here, but a lot of people who consider themselves die-hard hardcore wrestling fans looked at ECW was just barbed wire, baseball bats, chairs, tables, garbage cans, and it was really just a bunch of brawls. But the thing that Paul did, and this was so smart, Paul knew that what he needed to do with a wrestling company was he needed to give different genres of wrestling. So Paul had his brawlers, which obviously we just talked about, but then he had also some of his purists. He had guys like Chris Benoit and Dean Malenko on his roster, and then obviously he had Taz, who was really good as well, and then he starts to talk to Conan, And Conan had come in and worked in ECW, and Conan was talking to him. Conan was working down in Mexico as well and said, hey, listen, you know, we really should try to get some of these Mexican wrestlers from AAA, and we need to get them up to ECW to expose the American audience to Lucha Libre wrestling. Paul was all about that. Conan is, in my opinion, one of the best performers. There is. And then you got the Rey Mysterios and you got the Psychosis. And then you got the Super Crazies. And you got the Hooventudes. You got all these guys here that are so good at what they do. But you know, previous to that, they had not been seen on American television. So Paul was like, Well, I got my American wrestlers who are the technical guys. I have my brawlers, but now I can do an influx of wrestlers not only from AAA but the International Wrestling Council in Puerto Rico as well. Maybe we can try to kind of have this homogenized blend of wrestling that will appeal to everybody. And then we can have some of the comedic appeal as well, obviously, which would become the BWO. We can do fun stuff. So at the end of the day, we have literally everything. It's a one-stop shop for anyone who loves professional wrestling. So we uh, we also know that at this time that when people would leave ECW to go to other promotions, other companies, whatever, that they usually have a send-off. And ECW is no different. You know, either a guy in WWE will get jobbed out on his way out, or a guy leaving WCW will just, in the moment, sit at home and wait for his contract to expire. Well, anyway, there was a guy named Chad Austin who was leaving ECW, and he was going to be working for Jim Cornette, Smoky Mountain Wrestling. And in his last match in the ECW arena, he came out and obviously cut a promo, and he was basically saying that ECW is, is small potatoes, and I'm leaving because this isn't going to become anything more. Obviously, it's his way of, of, of leaving, But uh, Shane Douglas and the entire ECW roster comes out, beats him down, puts a microphone in his face, and forces him to say ECW is number one. So, so many things we've already discussed so far in this episode slash chapter, but there is even still some more. So, as we go later on in the fall, this is November 6th of 1994, WCW was doing an event and they were calling it When Worlds Collide. Well, there's kind of a problem with that. Because ECW had the rights to When Worlds Collide. So Paul Heyman, Todd Gordon get on the phone. They threaten to sue WCW. WCW comes back and says, how can we handle this without it going to litigation? They say, well, can you give me some of your WCW guys to appear on our ECW show? They agree to it. They originally were asking for Steve Austin, Kevin Sullivan, and Sherry Martell. Um, Originally, WCW had agreed to all of that, but then they called them back and said Steve Austin was unable to be a part of that, and they ended up asking for Brian Pillman. And that's kind of when things started to, I don't want to say, once again, continue that working relationship, but we had talked about in earlier chapters a working relationship eventually happened between ECW and WCW and then obviously even further down the road a working relationship between ECW and the WWF so that's kind of the way that was working they thought that bringing in Brian Pillman was was a good thing and if you go on the network you can see Brian Pillman and you can see how loose cannon and erratic he is but he was the perfect fit for ECW the perfect fit for it so, that once again, being able to have stars appear on the ECW programming that had previously been seen uh, in WCW definitely helped give them even some more exposure. So, and I'm kind of skipping through some things here. If you are reading the book, you probably have noticed I'm not going line for line, page by page. I'm kind of giving you the synopsises, and I'm also going to give you my opinions on this as well. So... Paul, once again, decided to go back into his uh, laboratory and start working on another project. So Paul had a guy who was part of his ring crew. And a young kid, athletic kid, um, he asked He asked him one time, he said, hey, do you want to wrestle? And he was like, sure, I'll wrestle. And that guy is Mikey Whipwreck. And Paul saw a lot in Mikey. Much like what he saw in Tommy Dreamer, he saw something that would endear ECW fans to him. So Tommy had that never give up type of attitude and he saw that also in Mikey. Mikey was that ultimate underdog. Tommy wasn't the underdog. He was just the guy who wouldn't quit. He wouldn't walk away no matter what happened. But Mikey, he was the underdog. He was the guy that people felt bad for. Uh, Mikey even calls himself the beat up guy. But there was really something special about Mikey Whipwreck. So... Mikey Whipwreck was, you know, that created his name, and that was a spoof off of uh, another promoter who was uh, in the independent wrestling scene as well, so that's how he kind of got his name. But Mikey worked his way up, and he paid his dues, and he worked really, really hard, and he became ECW television champion, and he became ECW world heavyweight champion, and it went over really, really well. And no matter what Mikey may say, because I know him on a personal level, and I know he's extremely humble about his successes in wrestling, Mikey filled a role in ECW that was huge, was really huge. And if you look at what Mikey did with his promos, if you look at the promos he did with Public Enemy, if you look at his matches with the Sandman, if you look at what Mikey Whipwreck did on the camera, he was gold. And one of my favorite matches, and I even said this before he and I and Jerry started the podcast, was that I loved that he had the last match with Cactus Jack before Cactus left to become Mankind in the WWF. I love that match. It was so good. It was so surreal. It was so raw. It was so genuine. And that's what Mikey did. And Mikey will forever have his name etched in the annals, as a big part of what ECW was all about. All right, so also in 1994, um, we kind of talked about Sabu a little bit, and then we kind of drifted away from him because we started talking about other people, but let's kind of get back to Sabu. So Sabu was really getting over with the audiences, and Sabu also started to get some looks from some other wrestling companies, specifically World Wrestling Federation. Well, Sabu had agreed to stay in ECW. He was very tempted with a very nice, lucrative contract from Vince McMahon. I do believe in some shoot interviews, uh, Sabu was offered something in the ballpark of like $250,000 a year. And Sabu told Vince, No, I can't take it. Vince says, Why? He says, Because I'm committed to ECW. And Vince says, you're committed to a company that might be here that might not be here tomorrow and uh, sabu said yeah but sabu also went on to say a big reason why that he liked to stay in ECW was that his character would have been changed in the WWF and we did also learn in some shoot interviews that the goal of bringing sabu into the WWF would have been to have him be the sultan character Which, obviously, we did find out end up being Rikishi. And he didn't want to do that because Sabu's uncle was the original Sheik and he would have had to have the Iron Sheik as his manager and refer to him as his uncle and that just wasn't going to fly with him. He wasn't going to disrespect his own family. Plus... You know, Sabu said he liked to do what he did and he would have to change himself and they were going to repackage him to a large degree and that wasn't that wasn't going to fly with him. So anyway, back to Sabu. So he was scheduled to face Chris Benoit in the main event of the November to Remember in 1994. Well, some things kind of happened along the way. So, Sabu had a conflict with some dates that he had made with another promoter. So, Sabu at this time also was working over in Japan in between working dates for ECW. Now, Sabu did turn down a lucrative offer to work a pretty big program over in Japan because of his dedication and his commitment to Paul Heyman, to Todd Gordon, to ECW, what they were trying to create. However, he did make an agreement to work this show. Well, it's very interesting here because like I said before, it depends on who you ask, but I do honestly, I do honestly believe what Sabu says. I he comes across as a very genuine guy, and I I don't think that in any way, shape, or form. Look, if he's turning Vince McMahon down to stick with Paul Heyman, if he's willing to stick with Paul Heyman when he breaks his neck and he scars up his body. How, how more dedicated can someone be to a company than what he was to Paul Heyman and to ECW and to the Philadelphia fans? So this whole situation, I don't know, it kind of rubs me the wrong way when I, when I look at it, when I read this, and I read it a few times. So what happened was Sabu had mentioned and he had spoken to Todd Gordon that he was not going to be at the event and that was the way it was. Well, anyway, days before the event, Todd then went out and put the word out that Sabu would not be there. So, Todd Gordon is telling people Sabu's not gonna be here. Sabu talks to Todd Gordon. That's that. Sabu has done what he's supposed to do. I mean, from a professional standpoint, he did everything. He was gonna go over and wrestle his match in Japan. Well, George Thanos, who is a ringside photographer, had a conversation with Sabu. And Sabu said that he was hoping that because of the time differential between Japan and the East coast in the United States, that he theoretically could do the match and then still come back and wrestle the match in the ECW arena. I mean, that was his ultimate goal in a perfect world. Well, Heyman opened up the show with a speech to the ECW audience that night that, um, was pretty scathing. And, um... He basically said, Sabu gave us a commitment and then decided that because he was offered more money on a weekly basis, he would not give you what you paid to see. And decided not to give me the courtesy of a phone call, Heyman said. You people, the audience of ECW and all the stars that have been fucked over, who were deemed not important enough to see perform in a match that you've been waiting for since Christmas. So... The the crowd starts chanting, fuck Sabu. It starts to gain momentum. Heyman said, I got news for you. You're right. Fuck him. The only way he's going to walk his miserable ass back into that door anymore is if you people say we forgive him, and then I'll bring him back if you say so. So, oh, man, like... There's that fine line between being really, really honest with the audience, but yet still being respectful to the fact that you got a guy here who's already talked to Todd and already told Todd what's going on. I think in a lot of ways, Paul didn't really mean that. I think that was Paul's character of, okay, Sabu's not gonna make it back. What are we gonna do? Oh, I get it, let's bury him, and then let's somehow work it out how we're gonna use him when he comes back, maybe try to work that into a storyline. But I think you got to be careful with that too, because, like I said, what happens if Sabu decided he didn't want to come back after he got, you know, cursed out? I mean, could you blame him if he decided he didn't want to come back? Maybe this was all worked out ahead of time between Sabu and Paul Heyman. I, I don't know. The book itself doesn't really go into those great of a details, but. Um, You know, Paul Heyman was very honest with the fans, according to the wrestlers in the ECW locker room. He may lie to your face as a performer, but he would never lie to the audience themselves. And Paul did tell people that uh, if you would like a refund for the show, because Sabu's not here, um, please wait till intermission, because I have something for you that may change your mind. At the end of the day, Paul ended up getting uh, one of the Steiner brothers to come out. Rick Steiner came on out. And very few people went to go get their return. So Paul definitely did a good job when it came to at least being able to try to make up for that. But I don't know. I got a lot of mixed feelings with that. Let me know what you think about that. Do you think that the whole thing was a work as well between Sabu and Paul? Or do you think no sabu talked to todd it was already understood in a perfect world if he could get back in time he would show up but right now i'm not going to be here he's notified him days ahead of time and then paul comes out and cuts that skate promo who knows who knows love to hear your opinions on that because i always like to get different people's perspectives on what you think happened. And also, please hit up YouTube, and there's so many shoot interviews out there. Devin Hannibal does an amazing job. RF Video does an amazing job at doing these shoot interviews. So go ahead, check them out. You're going to get a lot of different people's opinions on these things. Take it all in, and then at the end of the day, make a decision for your own. What really happened? Something else that I wanted to kind of go into here was, in late 1994, uh, Eddie Guerrero, who obviously was in was about to come into ECW, he was tag teaming with a guy named Art Barr. And they were the hottest tag team in wrestling at that time. And they were known as Los Gringos Locos. And they, were, they had so much heat on them that they were causing riots in Mexico. Well, what ended up happening was, they ended up getting in contact with Paul Heyman. Heyman started negotiating a contract with them to bring them into ECW but what had happened was the reason why they went down and they started working in Puerto Rico, Mexico, etc was because unfortunately uh, some legal issues uh, had come up with Mr. Barr and um, there was a sexual assault conviction I think the less said the better on this I'm just going to throw that out there you could look it up and research it if you want to but his character was a Beetlejuice character And we're not talking about the Howard Stern Beetlejuice. We're talking about the Beetlejuice from the movie. And that was kind of his character. Well, he really connected well with the younger audience, with the kids, all that kind of stuff, because people at that time loved the Beetlejuice movie. And the Beetlejuice character was really popular still. I mean, even though it had been several years since the movie came out. But uh, with the sexual assault thing, that really wasn't working too well. So Paul decides to go ahead and still bring him in. So Paul brings them in. Obviously repackages them, and it was it was crazy. And this is Conan. He says, "I told Paulie, however you use them, I promise you'll get you'll get they'll get over like crazy." Um, so Conan was also Mexico's biggest star and he was a booker for AAA and he was really becoming one of the, tops, the country's top performers so it, it got an endorsement from Conan which was a big thing because a lot of people like I said respect Conan not only for what he does in the ring but for his mind and what he does as a booker so Barr and Guerrero start working uh, they start working together they're really really hot still working in Mexico, still trying to negotiate something with Paul Heyman to come into ECW. And the book kind of goes into what these guys were making. And I know there's a lot of podcasts out there that don't really want to talk about money or how much people were making. But so they went from making the equivalent of $3,000 to $5,000 a week to about $2,000 a week or less because the uh, the peso had devalued so much that in Mexico I mean if you're making five grand a week and then you go down to maybe 1500 or 2,000 that's a pretty big drop in the money that you're making so they decided to go ahead and, and, and try to bring them in they wanted to revitalize Barr's career he and Guerrero were a great tag team however, in wrestling, it seems like just when someone is, is looking to try to make a change or trying to turn that corner, uh, something very tragic happens. And on November 23rd of 1994, Barr died in his sleep from a drug-related heart attack. He was only 27. So we're going to end this chapter on a did you know. So I'm not sure if how many of you people are aware of this. I did not know this myself, so now I'm going to act like I'm a, a, a smart dude here, but I found this out by my research that... As a nightly tribute to Barr that Guerrero still performed more than a decade after his performer's death, Guerrero made Barr's Frog Splash finisher his own when he became a singles performer in ECW. So, you ever want to know where that Frog Splash came from? It came from Art Barr, who is Guerrero's tag team partner. All right, that's going to do it for Chapter 5. When we go into Chapter 6, quote the Raven. Ooh, we're going to be talking about Scott Levy, also known as Raven. This guy has had an incredible career in pro wrestling. He also has a podcast as well called The Raven Effect, which I definitely recommend you go check out as well. So that's going to do it. Any questions or concerns you have about Chapter 5, anything that you would like to continue the conversation with on social media, don't hesitate to hit me up. You can always hit me. i got my DMs available as well. That's going to do it. We will catch you next time on Overbooked.